If you're joining us for the first time this morning or for the first time uh, in a little while, for the month of August, we're looking at the book of Philippians together. Uh, So this month, on the third Sunday of the month, we are in the third chapter of Philippians. Uh, We have seen Paul offering some uh, pretty general and universal encouragement and teaching about the nature of Jesus, ways that followers of Jesus should respond and conduct themselves Uh, This morning, we see Paul lean a little bit into some tensions. I'm talking about tensions both within the church community in Philippi, where he's writing, uh, but tensions also of understanding uh, the concepts he's communicating, tensions that uh, I believe we'll find that we wrestle with a little bit today. Now, tensions draw us in. They make us uncomfortable, for sure, but whether we want to admit it or not, when we know that there are tensions about, we kind of get to the edge of our seats, right? Whether that's in your workplace, your school, or a family dinner, when there's tension, um, even if we might sink back in our chair, we're, we're leaning forward because we want to hear what's happening, and it draws us in. And so this morning, we're going to see two specific tensions happening in Philippians Uh, And we're going to think about how those apply to us. So let's start looking at Philippians 3. Uh, We're going to be in verses 4 through 14. uh, But right now we're going to look at 4 through 11. So you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead." This first tension that we see outlined here in Philippians, Paul's talking about a tension between grace and merit. Paul names his qualifications. In verses 6 and 7, there's a laundry list of reasons why he might be considered righteous or holy. There were a lot of them, so much so that I got a little out of breath reading them. He names where he's from, his training, things that he's done, And in his former life as a Pharisee and as a scholar, he was so well-versed in rules and orders, talking about the law. His obedience to the law should have made him righteous, he writes. And he's referring to some of what we see in the Old Testament here, these rules and these orders to be followed. On paper, Paul's articulating everything he's done, all of his training, should bring him great spiritual gains. Yet he uses an interesting word to describe what those really bring him. He considers those on-paper merits to be garbage 
in light of where God's grace takes him. I can't help but smile reading this. Paul has a a very professional and formal way of writing uh, and then comes at us directly calling all of that garbage. And I really think that this is a watered-down translation as well because in Greek this could be uh, most commonly referred to as excrement or as dung. Uh, But we have garbage here in our English translation. Nothing that he could have achieved on his own, nothing in that laundry list of merit and of accomplishments Paul says, would do anything to make him truly and legitimately righteous. Paul's saying all of this, leaning into the tension that's afoot, because it appears there's people that Paul's writing to in Philippi in the first century. This was originally a letter to a church, and it seems there's people in this community who are putting value in the wrong places when it comes to their spirituality, when it comes to their faith. This is the the confidence in the flesh. That's the term Paul uses in verse 4. And in his humility, he's basically saying, if anyone thinks they're good on paper, if they have that confidence in the flesh, well, I, Paul, am probably better. And everything I've achieved, all these merits, they're garbage compared to what God's grace can afford me. When it comes to where we put our confidence and perhaps leaning on our own merits or things that we've accomplished, we'll see that in settings of trust and of unity in places like a church, that can lead to danger. That can lead to meritocracy or someone thinking that they might have more merits or need to hold more power than one or the other. So in his writing here, Paul is trying to stamp out that mindset by emphasizing that it's grace and that it's faith in Jesus that surpasses any sort of merit or any sort of figurative points that one might earn by rule following. This tension playing afoot in a church and in a community, you could picture how in the first century that would lay a shaky foundation for the church to grow, for the gospel to be communicated. And the same could be said today as well. Fortunately, uh, for us living in the 21st century, these are concepts Uh, we're able to see in Scripture and that we see uh, preached and taught in church so that hopefully we arrive to a point where we are fully aware uh, of the way that God's grace just overshadows anything that we could say or anything that we could do. Now, this leads Paul into his second tension of the passage here. Uh, This is a, a tension between transaction and transformation. After all of this emphasis on grace, Paul leans into talking about the ways that you need to strain ahead and press forward in faithfulness. So we're going to look at a a couple more verses here. This is uh, verse 12 through verse 16. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. 
Only let us live up to what we have already attained. The tension of grace versus merit is a pretty straightforward one on the surface. This tension between transaction and transformation leans into a couple other byproducts. What Paul is addressing here to the church and addressing to us today is a bit of a correction towards those with a mindset of complacency or who don't feel moved to make something of their lives as Christians. We see in Scripture, we see specifically from Paul, such an emphasis on freedom, which is a great thing. We are free through God. We are free from being held back by our sins. We are free from guilt. We are free from shame. We are free from having to earn our righteousness because righteousness is a gift from God. But the tension Paul is leaning into here is that this great reality of freedom can be taken a little bit too far. In Paul's first century audience, in today's 21st century audience, it's possible to drink from the fire hose of grace, so to speak, and and see the Christian life as a journey not of faithfulness, not of obedience in a long direction, a long obedience in the same direction that we talked about last week, but it's possible to take in so much of this grace that you interpret this freedom as a one-time checkpoint that you pass through. That's a tension that you could see leading to problems in the church Paul's writing to, leading to problems in churches today if salvation is something that's just a transaction, something that you do, you cross the checkpoint, and go on living your life. Paul is very intentional, writing to that community, writing to us today, of the importance of the transformational nature of salvation. Yes, it's a one-time thing that happens to you, but it kickstarts a life of growth and a life of continual pressing on to live lives that look like Jesus. When we think about people in the early church who were reading uh, these letters, or most likely who were hearing these letters in church, this could have sent a light bulb off for them as they realized what the tension was present in their church. The tension being that they really hadn't changed their lives. They basically showed up, put on the Christian badge, so to speak, but didn't have that transformational life change. So Paul addresses that. He's had his encouraging parts of the letter. He's had his uplifting parts. And as he does in some of his other letters, he's getting tactical in the ways that he's instructing the congregation how to respond to issues at hand. Uh, And in the same way, instructing us on how to respond to such situations in our life. Now, rather than addressing this conundrum with shame, Paul humbly paints a relatable picture. Have you guys seen this verse before? We just read it together in verses 13 and verse 14. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. It says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. It being this spiritual perfection or uh, totally figuring out how to faithfully be a disciple 
Paul says, I haven't yet taken hold of it. One thing I know, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, pressing on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. People have utilized this verse uh, throughout the ages in an encouraging manner for people who've gone through challenging times or something that they feel like they just can't get over. And Paul, while he has had his series of challenges in his past, he's also here alluding to some of the great things that he's done. The early church is 100% what it is because of God, because of the Spirit at work in it. But we've got to tip our hats to Paul for all of the teaching, the preaching, the traveling, the training, and the writing that he's done. His resume could not get much stronger when it comes to merits, when it comes to perhaps being able to just hang out because he's done enough to date. But Paul is saying he needs to forget all of that. He can't be complacent. He's saying, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul's aggressive desire to not be complacent in his faith should cause us to open our eyes. For Paul, his salvation, the way that he got to know Jesus and Jesus changed his life, was absolutely a transformation. And the history of the church would look so different if it was just a transaction for Paul, if he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and said, great, and went on doing what he was doing. But Paul is aggressive in his writing here. Whether you've had a rocky past, whether you are on top of the world right now, you cannot become complacent. You need to press on towards the prize that is Jesus. Which caused us to ask that question to ourselves this morning. What is it that might lead us to some complacency in our faith? For Paul, he knows he can't rest on his successes. He can't sit back and say, I planted a church here and here. I did some great preaching. You can read about it in Acts. This, that, and the other. Paul knows that he cannot rest on his successes. He's towards the end of his life. He is imprisoned. He is reflecting on what's ahead. He has achieved so much, but knows he needs to be persistently faithful or else he might become complacent and miss out on doing everything that God's calling him to do in that moment. On the other side of the coin, it's very natural to feel like the opposite of Paul here, like your inadequacies might keep you from finding joy or finding communion with God and with the church to the extent that you become complacent. Maybe there's just too much baggage there and you miss out on what God's putting before you. Perhaps you might wonder if there is anything new for you at this point. Maybe you have heard thousands of sermons, read book after book after book, and just feel like you've got this relationship with God thing figured out, but in the process become complacent. That's what Paul is writing towards here, encouraging that fire to be lit in people who know Jesus and who are following Jesus. Whatever it is, whatever comes to mind to you, 
as you think about this question. And if you don't have an answer right now, maybe it'll come later in the week. The call from Philippians 3 is to press on through that, to identify it, to name it, and to acknowledge the call that we see Paul writing here, to press on. For me, as, as I read this passage, as I've read it over this past week, and read Philippians in general, it's been hard to do this without thinking back to a, a particular class I took on the book of Philippians and the book of Philemon. This was back in my third year of divinity school, and I was so done with school, or done with the classroom. Has anyone been there, just like ready to be done with school? Hopefully no students or teachers yet, because it's August. But I went straight from college to divinity school. I was, I was just done with the classroom. So I was itching to be finished, and I, I rearranged my schedule so that I earned a majority of my credits working as a hospital chaplain. I took an independent study with a, an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, happy to tell you more about that sometime. But the big thing was I took a class in Raleigh Central Prison. And that class was on Philippians and Philemon. It was made up of half students from my divinity school and half men who were incarcerated, who lived in the prison. And for four months, we studied Philippians and Philemon. That's, in case you're counting, five chapters. Five chapters of the Bible, probably three or four sheets of paper, if you have a paper Bible. We spent so many hours on those five chapters, and it was particularly fascinating because Paul penned Philippians, and Philemon, we know, when he was in prison. So to study that scripture, to learn that alongside men for whom that was their reality was amazing. It was eye-opening, and it, it brought a new level of understanding to these passages that uh, I just simply hadn't had before. We talked about these concepts that we're talking about here uh, on Sunday mornings, today specifically about grace and merit in general. And to hear people who are serving life sentences talk about receiving and living into God's grace with the biggest grins on their faces caused me to reconsider how much I let God's grace shape my life and shape my outlook on any given day. This tension that Paul's addressing between grace and merit, it, it was non-existent for these classmates. Grace was all that was getting a lot of these guys through, and it was doing much more than getting them through. They were absolutely thriving. We see this emphasis on grace in Philippians 3. And it's my hope, and I believe it's Paul's call, that we, we can take that seriously this week to live into the grace that God offers us. I hope that grace can bring a smile to our faces this week as we bask in the grace of God that we know. And at the same time, as we have grace on ourselves as well. This is not a, a concept or uh, just a, a theological thing Paul wants to talk about. It's a reality that we are called to live into and to embrace. In that class, we, we even shared a meal together. Uh, we asked what would be most desirable. The answer was Bojangles. So at, at the end of the course, we brought that in and the bowberry biscuits had to be cut up. Everything was torn to shreds because it has to be searched to get in. But we had uh, such a holy meal and gathering 
over that Bojangles there in our classroom. And, and it became so clear as these people talked about how much more the incarcerated half of our class knew about transformation than the half that I was part of that was coming from the Divinity School. Many of those men who were incarcerated, they had no freedom. The state had resigned them to simply a number that they wore on their jackets that you could send mail to. But they were so aggressively being obedient to Paul's words that we see in the passage here. They were pressing on to finish the race. Rather than feeling complacent and hopeless, they found so much purpose in their calling as their friends in the little island of their world that they lived in. Salvation was not a transaction for them. It was a transformation that helped them live into God's grace and truly run the race of life pressing towards God. And they shared amazing stories of of ways that that was happening. They were so drawn and called to running the race. So our last question to consider this morning is, at what pace are we moving in our journey with God? We see Paul talking about the call to run. Is your journey with God right now something that looks like a sprint, maybe a steady jog or a walk even, or You know, we can be real. For some of us, we might be sitting on the bench, taking a break or stretching, ready to get going some more. Wherever you are, that's okay. But I want to encourage you in light of Philippians 3 this morning to ask God to give you a boost of energy, increased focus to forget what's behind, whether it's good, whether it's bad, and to press on towards what is ahead, to press on to the life that God is calling you to live, one that is full of substance and meaning and transformation that you extend to others. In the same way that these words have been an encouragement to Christians for centuries and centuries, I encourage you to look more closely at Philippians 3 this week. May God's word call you uh, to conduct yourselves in a manner that uh, just rests in God's grace, but also uh, sprints with intensity in obedience. I invite Hannah to come up to lead us in our final song this morning. I invite you all to stand as well. I encourage you to utilize this time in song as a time where we join our voices, but also a time when you reflect on some of what we're considering now in light of Scripture. Thank God for the reminder of God's grace in our lives and ask God for whatever next level or boost you need uh, to press on in the race. Anna.